Welcome back to the History Raid podcast. Before this week's hotly anticipated episode, a small piece of housekeeping. When listening over the previous episode on Russia's Viking origins, go listen to it if you haven't already, I noticed that I consistently mispronounced Prince Svatoslav's name as Stanislav. As I mentioned in the episode, Eastern European pronunciations are a little tricky for me, and I apologise for that mistake. With that out of the way, let us proceed with this week's episode. Welcome to the History Raid podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kovach. Today's topic, 1861 to 1914, Previews of Apocalypse. If you were to ask me what war in history I would be most keen to avoid serving in, most days I would choose the First World War. As Dan Carlin brilliantly characterised in his epic 23-hour series on the First World War, Blueprint for Armageddon, the experience of frontline soldiers on all sides in the First World War was nothing short of apocalyptic. When reading about the kind of warfare that characterised the First World War, a number of distinct, defining qualities can be identified. The first is an unprecedented level of firepower being utilised on the battlefield. Humanity's drive to create new and effective ways to kill one another from a distance had reached impressive new heights off the back of the Industrial Revolution and the meteoric scientific advancement that came with it. The single machine gun, a modern howitzer of the World War I battlefield, was capable of mowing down dozens of men in seconds at unprecedented distances. Even the humble bolt-action rifles of the average foot-slogging infantryman could lay down a fearsome level of firepower if present in great enough numbers. Stemming partly from this introduction of new levels of firepower, field fortifications and entrenchments, a common sight on European battlefields going back centuries, escalated to the point that most World War I battles became more akin to sieges than conventional field battles. Extensive planning preceded every attack, with continual sniping, raiding and harassing bombardments, keeping both sides on their toes. When the attacks finally came, they were usually preceded by massed artillery barrages to try and open holes in the enemy defences that the attackers would attempt to storm, making their way through pre-prepared kill zones and layers of enemy defences, necessitating brutal and desperate close quarters fighting to capture them. Finally, perhaps the darkest aspect of World War I warfare was a distinct sense of futility cast over many of the battles fought in the conflict. The image of a wave of soldiers being sent into no man's land to be slaughtered before getting anywhere near their objective, only to be followed by further waves of men whose own slaughter was seemingly as pointless as the first, is a common and poignant image of the war. A common explanation of this final defining characteristic of World War I was the failure by military leaders on all sides of the conflict to anticipate and quickly adapt to this new style of warfare. There's an old school of thought that presents the generals of World War I as close-minded idiots, getting their men slaughtered through tactics repeatedly proven ineffective to the point of outright murder, all while enjoying comfortable, 
safe conditions, miles behind the front lines. Donkeys leading lions, as they were christened by the politician and historian Alan Clark in 1961. A broad, detailed analysis of World War I proves this characterization to be extremely unfair. Among the British Army and the Dominion forces alone, 78 generals were killed in action. Furthermore, in 1917, and particularly 1918, innovations in technology such as the tank, and innovations in tactics such as stormtrooper tactics, saw combat on the Western Front move away from grinding attritional trench warfare to something more closely resembling modern, fast-moving, World War II-style combat. While I feel it is fair to call the lions-led-by-donkeys myth to be borderline slanderous, I also think it is understandable for contemporary audiences to feel great discomfort at the idea that the first three years of the First World War effectively represented a trial-and-error program of on-the-job learning for the conflict's generals, their errors resulting in the death of millions. Furthermore, the assertion that the generals of World War I could not have anticipated the kind of warfare they would be expected to engage in is very much false, in my opinion. There are echoes of First World War warfare that goes back centuries before 1914. The gruesome, attritional siege assaults by Ottoman forces against the walls of Malta and Vienna in the 16th century are reminiscent of ill-fated charges across no man's land, as are the corpse-soaked battlefields of Napoleonic Europe after they were swept by cannon and musket fire. For the sake of convenience, I will restrict myself to conflicts that took place within what would have been living memory for the people of 1914, starting with the 1861 to 1865 American Civil War. While many Civil War battles continue to closely resemble those of the Napoleonic era, a number of notable actions bear a close resemblance to World War I warfare. Firstly, the attack on Maury's Heights at the 1862 Battle of Fredericksburg. Confederate forces facing the attacking Union forces at Fredericksburg have plenty of time to prepare themselves thanks to the Union's torturously slow process of moving their forces across the Rappahannock River. The northern wing of the Confederate Army used this delay to place their infantry on a low ridge behind a four-foot stone wall that they reinforced with additional wooden fortifications, and further behind them, on higher ground, a battery of artillery that enjoyed a commanding view of the ground the Union would have to attack across. The Union troops, confident in their numerical superiority, charged the Confederate position in four waves in shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder formations. The ground they moved across was mostly empty, offering the advancing Union soldiers nothing in the way of protection and concealment from, from Confederate artillery and rifle fire. Union troops attacking the Confederates also made the poor decision of stopping out in the open to fire their rifles ineffectively at the Confederate troops behind cover, rather than charging the stone wall with bayonets to try and drive the Confederates off the stone wall. Needless to say, the Union waves were decimated, having holes torn in their ranks by cannon fire before being seen off by volleys of rifle fire. 
Rather remarkably, the commanding Union general, Ambrose Burnside, ordered an additional three attacks on the Confederate position following the initial four failed attacks. These three attacks were decimated in turn. The idea behind these seemingly pointless attacks was to buy time for the remnants of the first three attacks to reorganize and retreat to a strong position in case of a possible, but ultimately non-forthcoming, Confederate counterattack. Despite this, it is hard to escape the impression that these delaying attacks were, were nothing more than complete wastes of life. By the time fighting at Maury's Heights ended, 8,000 Union troops lay dead for a mere 1,200 Confederate losses. Stories from wounded survivors of the Union attack say that the Union bodies lay so thick on Maury's Heights that, the wo that wounded Union soldiers were able to effectively use them as protection for Confederate rifle fire. These sorry scenes would be repeated a year later, this time not at the hands of an inexperienced commanding general like Burnside's, but on the order of the single greatest general of the conflict, General Robert E. Lee. At a decisive battle of Gettysburg, unsuccessful attacks against the well-defended Union positions in the south and north of their battle line led General Lee to believe that the centre of the Union line must be weak, ordering his right-hand man, General James Longstreet, who had served alongside Lee at Fredericksburg, to attack the centre of the Union line. To Longstreet, what he was being asked to do must have borne an unsettling similarity to the futile Union attacks at Fredericksburg. To attack the Union centre, his troops would have to cross an open field towards Union infantry positioned behind a stone wall with artillery behind them. To Lee's partial credit, he did not immediately order an attack, preceding the attack with a massive artillery barrage, one loud enough that it was supposedly heard over 40 miles away. Lee promised Longstreet, as many World War I generals would promise their troops just over 50 years later, that the sheer level of firepower unleashed would smash their enemy's defences to pieces, neutralise the enemy artillery, and leave the surviving infantry so haggard and demoralised that the waves of attacking infantry could simply sweep them aside. Instead, shortly after Longstreet's men advanced out of the protection of the tree line they had started their advance within, Union cannonballs began tearing into them. About halfway across the field, Union gunners switched to shrapnel shells. These shells exploded above the heads of advancing Confederate troops, showering them with white-hot shards of metal, a design that would have changed little fundamentally by the time World War I soldiers were being shelled with them. As Confederate forces neared the Union line, the Union gunners switched ammunition once more, this time to canister shot. Canister shot, for those who don't know, is a kind of artillery round that takes the form of a canister filled with lead balls, converting the cannon into what is effectively a giant shotgun when fired. Similar flechette rounds would be dropped from aircraft onto the heads of World War I soldiers in the later years of that war. Finally, as the charge neared the stone wall, the Confederates came under a hail of rifle fire from Union infantry taking cover behind it their own return fire being relatively ineffective. 
Remarkably, the Confederate charge made it all the way to the Stone Wall, and a brief period of fierce hand-to-hand -hand fighting was required to break them and send them fleeing back across the open field to their initial starting position. Ultimately, around half of the 12,000 strong Confederate force, many of them wounded, managed to limp back to their own lines. The rest had either been killed, left badly wounded on the open field, or had been captured. In an apparent response to the horrific casualties attacking forces against prepared defences took, the final two years of the American Civil War would see both sides begin to engage in literal trench warfare, most famously at the Siege of Petersburg. After entrenched Confederate forces defeated an initial Union attack on the city on June 9, 1864, Union General Ulysses S. Grant ordered his men to retreat and dig their own trenches. The next nine months would see the 100,000 strong Union force repeatedly try and break through what became a 30-mile-long series of trenches and earthworks surrounding Petersburg. The most notable attempt to break the deadlock of Petersburg came on July 30th, 1864, when Union engineers dug a tunnel underneath a section of the Confederate trench line. They filled the end of the tunnel with high explosives, and at 4.44am, a colossal explosion obliterated the chosen section of the trench line, killing 278 Confederates instantly, and leaving the survivors shocked and disoriented. The Union forces charged forwards into the huge crater in an attempt to break through the Confederate lines and capture key positions behind the Confederate trenches. However, the Union commander, our old friend General Burnside, underestimated the size of the crater, and the Union soldiers found that the sides of the crater were too steep to easily clamber out of once they had descended into it. The crater was then quickly surrounded by the vengeful Confederates, who spent the next few hours slaughtering the trapped Union soldiers. The first day of the Somme, in 1916, would see the British use tunnelling units to detonate no less than 19 underground charges even more powerful than those used at Petersburg, hoping to create exploitable gaps in the German defences. However, just like at Petersburg, the plan failed. In the case of the explosion at Hawthorne Ridge, when British troops arrived at the crater, they immediately came under intense fire from German troops on the far side of the crater, preventing them from crossing. At another crater, south of the village of La Bosselle, British troops managed to successfully occupy the crater and tried to advance before being forced back into the crater by a German counterattack. German artillery then began to shell the crater, decimating the exposed British soldiers trapped within. While an argument can certainly be made that the American Civil War heavily foreshadowed that of the First World War, an attempt to do a one-to-one -one comparison of the two is unwise. To start with, military technology still had a long way to go to reach World War I levels. The average Civil War infantryman carried a single-shot rifle that demanded a lengthy reloading process. Civil War artillery was also mostly of the Napoleonic muzzle-loading variety, resulting in a much lower range and rate of fire 
compared to World War I artillery. It is also notable that American Civil War soldiers demonstrated a shockingly poor level of accuracy during the conflict, despite the relative accuracy of their rifles, limiting their killing potential on the battlefield. Union Army records indicate that during the war, every 1,000 rounds fired only saw a single Confederate soldier hit. The National Rifle Association of America would be founded in 1871, six years after the end of the Civil War, in large part as a response to this, its original mission being to encourage Americans to take up marksmanship recreationally in order to provide the US military with competent marksmen in the event of another war. Also, fun fact, the first president of the NRA was our friend Ambrose Burnside, who during the war had lamented the poor quality of Union recruits, declaring his belief that only one in ten of his soldiers could hit the broadside of a barn. That said, the American Civil War should seemingly have established basic principles in effectively waging war in an age of modern weaponry. Principles that would take the shedding of three years' worth of blood from the great powers of Europe to right. From what we can begin to regard as the kinds of combat comparable to that which we would see on the Western Front in World War I, we need to jump forward to 1898, where outside the Sudanese city of Khartoum, a mixed Anglo-Egyptian force of 25,000 men faced off against 52,000 religious warriors known as the Mahdists. The British regulars present at the Battle of Omdurman were part of what was considered the best-trained fighting force in the world at the time, and had the hardware to match. The British infantry were armed with the Lee Metford rifle, an early version of the Lee Enfield rifle British soldiers would utilise in the First World War. The Lee Metford rifle was the first bolt-action rifle issued to the British Army, allowing the British infantrymen to accurately fire 20 rounds a minute at an effective range of 800 yards. Supporting the ranks of riflemen were 44 quick-firing breech-loaded artillery guns and 20 Maxim machine guns. Primitive machine guns such as the Gatling gun had been in use since the mid-1800s, but the Maxim gun, invented in 1884, is generally considered the first true machine gun. It was relatively compact, was fired with a trigger mechanism rather than being hand-cranked, utilised a water cooling system to prevent the barrel from overheating, and was capable of firing up to 600 rounds a minute. When 20,000 Mahdists, mostly armed with swords, spears and outdated rifles, charged the British lines at the height of the battle, 4,000 were mown down by shells and bullets before the rest broke and ran. Reportedly, the Mahdist charge was stopped 300 yards away from the British firing line, with a single suicidally brave standard bearer charging an additional 150 yards before he was shot and killed. In something resembling a passing of the torch moment, the only real moment of difficulty for the British force came when the commanding British general, Lord Horatio Kitchener, who had served as Secretary of State for War during the opening years of World War I, ordered the British 21st Lancers to charge after the fleeing Mahdists. 
the 400 strong cavalry force, which included a certain, certain Lieutenant Winston Churchill, quickly found themselves in a very sticky situation, where they were ambushed by 2,500 Mardists. In the vicious melee that ensued, the British cavalry was just able to drive off the Mardists with their lances, swords and pistols. The Battle of Omdurman was a decisive British victory, with a mere 48 British soldiers killed, while the Mardists lost 12,000 warriors. While the imperialist mindset of the time might be able to dismiss the one-sided butchery at Omdurman in the face of modern weaponry as simply another example of a first-rate European-style army slaughtering a force of primitives, a phenomenon that had taken place countless times since the 15th century and thus surely could provide little insight into what a future war between the great powers of Europe might look like. The 1904-1905 war between Russia and Japan is harder to dismiss, however. At this point in history, Russia was definitely considered a first-rate military power in Europe, and Japan, having recently modernised, was also boasting a level of firepower that was equivalent to its European contemporaries. The first major land battle of the Russo-Japanese War took place at the heavily fortified Russian naval base of Port Arthur, the current-day Lushunku district of the Chinese city of Dalian. This was actually the second time Japanese forces had attacked this particular city, having previously stormed it with relative ease during the 1894-1895 First Sino-Japanese War. Japanese general Nogi Marasuke, the same man who had taken the city from the Chinese, was confident his force of 150,000 men and 474 artillery pieces could repeat his previous success, but the ensuing siege would prove to be a nasty surprise for him. Port Arthur was defended by 50,000 Russian troops with 506 artillery pieces. They had established two defensive lines protecting the city, an outer defence perimeter consisting of a series of heavily fortified hills bristling with Maxim guns and small 6-inch artillery pieces. Each of these hilltop forts was connected by a network of trenches, allowing the Russians to quickly and safely move troops between each of these forts in response to attacks. Behind this outer rim of defences, were the old 10-foot-tall Chinese walls of the city, enhanced by the Russians with concrete forts, machine gun bunkers and trenches. Out in front of these already formidable defences were, were thick tangles of a new, deceptively simple innovation that would bedevil both the Japanese and the armies of the First World War. Barbed wire. Invented in 1865 to restrain cattle, and first put into military use by the Portuguese in 1895, barbed wire was cheap to produce, and unless cut by hand or intense bombardment, was an impenetrable obstacle for advancing Japanese soldiers. The son of a samurai warrior, General Marasuke had little initial interest in the defence of Port Arthur, convinced that Japanese fighting spirit would win them the day. After a 15-hour preliminary bombardment meant to shred the barbed wire and smash the forts, 
the first Japanese attack began at 7.30pm on the 7th of August against the two hills to Port Arthur's northeast. The Japanese had hoped the darkness would provide them with the element of surprise, but high-powered Russian searchlights exposed the advancing Japanese infantry to artillery and machine gun fire. The Japanese ultimately took the relatively lightly defended forts through sheer weight of numbers, losing 3,000 men in the process. The remaining forts to the south would not fall so easily. At the fort defending Port Arthur's water supply, the Russians electrified their barbed wire, fatally electrocuting many Japanese soldiers as they struggled through the narrow gaps under continual machine gun fire. During the taking of the East Panlung Fort, the 1,700-strong Japanese 7th Regiment that took part in that ultimately successful attack was reduced to a mere 200 men. On the 25th of August, General Marasuke switched tactics, ordering his men to dig trenches at the foot of the remaining Russian-held hills and begin digging tunnels underneath the Russian defences to blow them up, a la the Siege of Petersburg. While a number of these tunnelling operations were successful, a number of others were detected by the Russian defenders, who dug their own tunnels to intercept them, resulting in brutal hand-to-hand -hand fighting when the opposing tunnels happened on each other. With the arrival of a shipment of huge 11-inch guns, weapons that could finally make a real impression on the Russian defences in October, Marasuke began to make steady progress using his attritional siege tactics. Late November, however, would see renewed urgency forced upon him. Marasuke began to come under pressure from the Japanese High Command to finish up the siege of Port Arthur quickly in order to free up men to be sent north to face the main Russian army. Marasuke identified 203 metre hill, a position which if he managed to capture it would grant him an excellent position to shell Port Arthur itself, as key to resolving the battle quickly. Unfortunately for his men, 203 metre hill was more akin to a mountain. It was very tall, 203 metres above sea level, as implied by the name, and boasted two peaks, each of which was crowned by a fort reinforced with timber and armour plating, making them highly resilient to artillery bombardment. The final assault began on November 28th, with Marasuke sending wave after wave of Japanese troops up the hill into a storm of bullets and shells. On several occasions, Japanese troops reached the top of the hill, but were thrown back by ferocious Russian counterattacks. On December 5th, the Japanese shelled 203 metre hill with over 1,500 pound shells, shattering the remaining fortifications and leaving only a handful of bloodied Russian survivors. A final mass assault late in the day finally took the hill. By the end of the battle, the Japanese had lost a staggering 14,000 men in exchange for 203 metre hill and 6,000 Russian losses. Poor Arthur surrendered soon after. All in all, the 150,000 strong Japanese force sent to take Port Arthur sustained over 91,000 killed and wounded doing so. General Marasuke was so horrified by the losses his army had sustained, including his only surviving son, 
But after the war, while recounting the siege to Japanese Emperor Meiji, Marusuke broke down in tears, apologising for the loss of life, and asking to be permitted to kill himself out of atonement. Emperor Meiji refused to grant this, insisting that Marusuke was simply following his orders. Marusuke seemingly never forgave himself, though, committing ritual suicide on the day of Meiji's death in 1912, listing in his suicide note his perceived failure at Port Arthur as one of the reasons for his death. The final decisive battle of the Russo-Japanese War would ultimately take place in February and March of 1905, just south of Mukden, the modern-day Chinese city of Shenyang. Unlike the fighting at Port Arthur, the fighting at Mukden was characterised by fluidity rather than attrition, with the Japanese constantly manoeuvring and recklessly attacking to surround the Russian forces. Nevertheless, machine guns, modern artillery, trenches and barbed wire were a common sight at the Battle of Mukden, with the Japanese army alone expending over 20 million rifle and machine gun rounds alongside over 279,000 shells in just 10 days of fighting. That same 10 days fighting would see over 75,000 Japanese casualties and over 88,000 Russian casualties. Following the Russo-Japanese War, Japan and Britain would sign an alliance, and Russia had been part of an anti-German alliance with France since 1891. Yet remarkably, Despite the military cooperation between these nations, Britain and France seemed to experience genuine shock and horror when they began to experience Port Arthur-style casualty figures of their own in 1914. Famously, the British Expeditionary Force, the initial British force sent, sent over to fight in France in 1914 that numbered about 70,000 men, saw 8,000 killed or wounded over the course of about 11 hours of fighting on the 26th of August 1914. When British General Archibald Murray heard these casualty figures, he reportedly collapsed in shock. In light of all the battles I have mentioned today, I can't help but be struck by the remarkably poor tactical decisions taken by the combatants of World War I in the early years of that conflict. The unquestioning faith on the part of British officers at the Battle of the Somme, that the apocalyptic artillery barrage that preceded the massed attacks on the first day would annihilate the German positions, should have been shaken by Robert E. Lee's own misplaced faith in his artillery's efficacy against the Union Centre at Gettysburg. The school of the offensive, the school of the bayonet that was utterly pervasive through the French army in 1914, the idea that with sufficient speed and elan, that the bayonet charge could be an effective counter to modern weaponry, was an idea that should have been thoroughly disproven by the impotent zealotry of the Mardists at the Battle of Omdurman. Finally, the colossal losses the Japanese military took taking a few hilltops in northern China in the face of modern weaponry in 1904 should have brought the entirety of military thought and planning in Europe to a screeching halt in order to ponder a singularly important question. Are the motivators that ultimately led to the First World War, nationalism, jingoism, colonies, and the claiming of rightful territories, really worth a war 
that would see continual Siege of Port Arthur style battles take place over the course of years? While I will continue to defend the generals of World War I from the label of Butcher, the fact that the eminently foreseeable took place under their watch is a failure that truly deserves to be shackled to their legacy. Thank you for listening. I hope you will continue to tune in for my future Raids into History.